1: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And Sarah and I were talking books earlier like we do. And I keep meaning to read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea because I hear maybe a narwhal makes an appearance.
2: I, I don't even remember that. It's been so long since I read that book. I was probably like 10 years old or something. My Aunt Kim gave me a big batch of Jules Verne books and I raced through them. I remember my favorite one, though, is The Mysterious Island. That was a... Very cool book.
1: Well, and I've been calling Sarah Steampunk since we went to Dragon Con and we're talking about the influences of Jules Verne on the steampunk movement, but. He would be a good podcast subject. She swears she is not. There's this (laughs) other great American novel that I keep meaning to read, Moby Dick. And when you love a book enough, it often inspires you to learn more, at least it does us, um, about the author, about the time period, about the circumstances surrounding the writing of the book. And it's extra exciting when a beloved book has its basis in fact, and that is the case with Moby Dick and a whale ship called the Essex.
2: So if you were a 19th century elementary schooler, you wouldn't have missed this story in history class, but somehow or another, it has been lost over the years. And that's a shame because it's a really crazy story. So
1: we're going to give you some context because it's what makes history make sense. And when I think Nantucket, I think Nantucket Reds because I know a lot of very preppy people um who have weddings involving lobster. But our story does not take place in modern times. And no whalers wore shirts with an actual whale logo on Pink them. Pink
2: whale. Yeah, vineyard vines. So whaling today is generally not considered a noble pursuit. But, you know, hey, neither is eating sled dogs, but it worked at the time, right? The economy of Nantucket for a really long time, though, was based on whale hunting, and it makes the town a very, very wealthy place. So Native Americans in New England were known to
1: butcher dead whales that had washed up on or near shore, but no one got into boats to hunt the creatures until the 17th century. it's a little crazy to do that. You're going to find out. (laughs) (laughs) They were searching for right whales, which was an actual designation of some whales, but they were also known as the right ones to kill because these baleen whales stuck close to the shore, and Nantucketers and Indians would go shore whaling together. Guess who was captain in these little boats? And according to the New Bedford Whaling Museum, the whalers harpooned their prey, and this instrument that they harpooned them with had ropes attached to it that ended in wooden floats, and the whale would exhaust itself pulling these floats, and when it got tired enough the whalers could lance it and take it back to the shore to
2: harvest the blubber and the whalebone so we've got to establish what you use all this stuff for the blubber is boiled down to make oil which was used for a long time in lamps and candles and i mean it was it was how people used light the whalebone was used for stays and uh we we saw kind of a lot of corsets at Dragon Con we but did. I, for one, don't really miss the days of corsetry. Neither does Scarlett (laughs) O'Hara. But whaling didn't become a really big business until the 18th century, and that's when sailors, after hunting those right whales almost to extinction, realized that there were much bigger whales further out. Those are the sperm whales. And sperm whales are deep divers, like my
1: narwhal, and they're the biggest toothed whale. They like squid, and they're in every ocean, sometimes diving 3,300 feet down, according to the American Cetacean Society. And they're not usually white. Sorry, Melville. But the characteristic that most interested the whalers was what was in a sperm whale's head. No, not its brain. It's spermaceti.
2: So this definitely requires a little explanation. It's called the spermaceti because people thought it was the whale's semen. It's not. But it's really this type of wax. And it didn't have a smell, so it could be used in makeup and candles and used to lubricate machines. And supposedly those candles burned brightest. And according to Encyclopedia Britannica, quote, The former official unit of illumination, the candle power, was defined as the light given off by a candle of pure spermaceti, burning at a rate of 7.776 grams, 120 grains per hour. So there you have it, candle power and the stuff in a whale's head. But if you were really, really lucky, you might also
1: find some ambergris, which is this weird stuff that forms in the intestines of sperm whales. And it can come out either end, but the bigger pieces of it come out of a whale's mouth, which is why it's often known as whale vomit. And squid beaks are sometimes found in it. So maybe the ambergris is a way of protecting the whale's insides. But when it first comes out, it's really gross and smells like dung according to some <laughs> scientists but if you find it in the ocean after it's been there for a while it smells fantastic and it's used in the best of the best perfumes because it makes the scent stick according to an article on our site by Julia Layton and some people say it's also an aphrodisiac I, I have to
2: wonder how people discover the uses for things like this for for both of the things we just mentioned that sound really gross in one case kind of stinky. I mean, how do you figure out... You're not getting whale vomit for your birthday, Sarah. How about that? (laughs) Maybe (laughs) just a nice
1: perfume.
2: (laughs) Give me the converted form.
1: When whaling was at its peak, ambergris was literally worth its weight in gold. So this is a big deal. Let's get back to our whale hunters, though.
2: Okay, so the island of Nantucket is the heart of the whaling industry, or it was at the time? You didn't like my joke I had in the outline,
1: is <laughs> so that it was the blubber of the whaling industry. Haha.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good really line. bad. <laughs> so, from
1: 1800
2: to 1840, it was considered the whaling capital of the world, and according to the Nantucket Island Chamber of Commerce, uh, that's that pretty big. Designation, I'd say. Others put its heyday sometime between 1750 and 1850. But this was it. This was where everything happened. Nantucket. Nobody was better at hunting the sperm whale. And the Quakers of the island had a corner on the market and therefore they had a corner on the money. So to go farther and farther in the ocean, whalers would need
1: bigger and better ships and also a way to deal with the blubber and such on board instead of hauling it back to shore because, you know, it would rot before they got there. So we will introduce the triworks, which was, um, this combination of two pots known as tripods in a furnace. And that was a way that you could boil your oil on board a ship and fresh blubber made better oil anyway. So this was a, a
2: huge, a huge step to process right. the whale on the ship. You don't have the rotten carcass anymore. You don't have the thousands of pounds of whale meat that you're toting to around. Carry you can stay out there for a long time, condensing the blubber into the precious oil. But you would think if you've got these giant pots of oil
1: and also a lot of fire It might be a bit dangerous, and it was. Fires on board, of course, were very possible, but more dangerous were the whales themselves because you don't go around chasing giant whales in tiny little boats and expect always to
2: come out on top. We've already seen
1: what whales can do to
2: ponies in a recent (laughs) episode, so you can imagine...
1: Nathaniel Philbrick in In the
2: Heart of the Sea, which is
1: uh, an excellent book that I just started reading, but it's pretty much the definitive account of the Essex, related that in 1810, there were 47 fatherless children on Nantucket, you know, a pretty small island, and a quarter of the women over 23 were widows. So you sent your men off to sea knowing that there was a very good chance they might not come back.
2: And by the time we get to the American Revolution, these ships are going further than they have ever been before to the Falkland Islands to the west coast of Africa um, other ports were starting to become players in the whaling industry right, like New Bedford Yeah, but Nantucket was still the leader and the American Revolution of course slowed things down a little bit it makes sending out ships more difficult and same deal with the War of 1812 but by the Treaty of Ghent uh, it was time to go back to sea. And that was in 1814. And it's in August 1819 that a particular ship set sail, the Essex.
1: And just to give you a little about whaling ships, all of these details come from the New Bedford Whaling Museum as well. Um, our usual whaling ship was about 300 tons, and it had the triworks on board, like we mentioned before. Uh, the Essex was a little bit smaller than that. And each whale ship carried three to five small whale boats with it, because obviously you can't chase a whale it's with a giant ship. No. And there were planks on the starboard side so men could stand there to cut up the whales. So I'm just... You know, if, if you try to picture it, this ship out in the middle of nowhere, these tiny boats chasing after whales, this, the fire and the oil all on board and men cutting up these gigantic whales on a ship.
2: I'm just imagining how slippery everything would be with the greasy whale blubber everywhere and the, the rocking ship. And you, it's easy to see why this was such a dangerous profession. I'm so clumsy to begin with. I'm pretty sure I would slide from one end to the other and go directly overboard. (laughs) So the farther these ships were out at sea, of course, the longer the journeys were. And oftentimes it would, it would take years for one mission. Um, ships carried enough provisions for about four years and they would usually have approximately 30 men on board. And the men weren't paid a wage. So it wasn't like you got a big chunk of money up front or got some sort of hourly salary for the amount of time you worked. Instead, they got a share in the profits when they came back to shore with all their whale oil. So it was a pretty good incentive to kill as many whales as possible, even if it meant staying out for a really long time, even if it meant risking your life. Right. It was worth the risk for them. So the Essex set sail with a lot
1: of Nantucket men and also some black men and some off-islanders. Uh, Nantucket men were very snobby and they would have preferred to have all Nantucket men aboard, but they sort of ran out. Maybe
2: because... A lot of them were dying in <laughs> whale accidents?
1: But the off-islanders were called coofs, which was quite an insult. And they had planned for a trip of two to three years, but they knew they'd have to go even farther than Cape Horn, where others were going. Um, some said that even the whales off of Chile and Peru were completely gone. So the new place to go was way, way out in the Pacific, farther than pretty much every whaling ship had ever gone. Um, but that's where the money was this quote, almost untraversed ocean, according to First Mate. Owen Chase. So they went.
2: Yeah. And the trip didn't go well. Almost from the start, they were nearly blown over. They lost boats. They weren't seeing whales. And then it got much, much worse on November 20th, 1820. And okay, so the sailors finally saw a pod of whales and sent two of the ship's boats to to chase the pod to get some Oil and everything. But the cabin boy spotted something that was really, really strange an 85 foot, 80 ton whale, way too close to the boat. It was about 100 yards away, then 35 yards away, and it was heading straight toward them. And they tried to turn the boat, but there wasn't enough
1: time. It hit them, and it then went under, scraped the bottom of the boat, resurfaced looked at them for a second, and came at them again at six knots, directly toward the boat. And we have a quote from first mate Owen Chase, who would later write a book about his experiences called Narrative of the Most Extraordinary and Distressing Shipwreck of the Whale Ship Essex. They had some good, very descriptive titles, Lengthy titles back then, yes. We're not allowed to have titles that long. <laughs> no, our producer won't let us. Uh, Quote, I could distinctly see him smile his jaw together, as if distracted with rage and fury. I turned around and saw him about 100 rods directly ahead of us, coming down apparently with twice his ordinary speed. And to me at that moment, it appeared with tenfold fury and vengeance in his aspect.
2: So according to him, the captain cried out, my God, Mr. Chase, what is the matter? And he answers, we have been stove by a whale. So... The ship has a huge hole in the bottom and it sinks quickly. Where are we at? We're in the middle of the Pacific and a whale has just attacked
1: us repeatedly. So luckily, unlike the Titanic, they had these uh, little whale boats in good working order with supplies on board. We've got 21 men and three boats, and they were divided up according to status among the boats. Captain George Pollard, Jr. had the Nantucket men. The first mate had some more Nantucket men, some black men, and one off-islander. And the third mate had all off-islanders and black men. And if they ate and drank practically nothing... They might, just might, have enough supplies for 60 days. Their
2: supplies were two casks of bread, 195 gallons of water, musket and powder, tools, and a few turtles for eating. Not for pets. No. So, they have two options. And the first was to head to the Tahitian Islands, which were about 1,200 miles away. But they were afraid that if they went there, they might run into cannibals. So... Yeah, yeah, that's
1: (laughs) that's interesting. Remember Remember that 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 detail.
2: So they decided instead on another plan to head south, and perhaps the winds would carry them all the way to Chile. But the journey wasn't easy. There were all these storms. There's, of course, sun just beating down all the time. There's sharks. I mean, maybe you never know. You might even run into another pod of whales again. And seawater got into the hardtack, so which I'm sure was so delicious to begin with. Anyhow, So it's, it's immediately a really bad time in these little boats. And the boats landed in
1: the Pitcairn Islands for a time, but unfortunately not the same one as our guys from the Bounty did, because there wasn't much there besides water and some birds, and certainly not enough to feed all of them. But three men decided to stay, and the rest headed back to the sea. But they had run out of the supplies they had, and it was clear that, you know, disaster and despair
2: are on the way. They, they began to die. And when the first men died, they were given a proper burial at sea, you know, a, a respectful burial. Um, but that didn't last for much longer. The
1: other men are even eating their shoes, but soon starvation and dehydration set in, along with these hallucinations. And if that doesn't sound too terrible to you, this is Philbrick's description of what happens when you remain dehydrated for so long. Quote, The tongue swells to such proportions that it squeezes past the jaw. The eyelids crack, and the eyeballs begin to weep tears of
2: blood. So... What are they going to do? And this is where the really terrible stuff comes in. Because when the next man died, they did what they had to do to stay alive. They ate him. And here's a quote from Chase. We separated the limbs from the body and cut all the flesh from the bones, after which we opened the body, took out the heart, closed it again, sewing it up as decently as we could, and then committed it to the sea. And every man who died after that Suffered the same fate. But then no
1: one died for a while and lots were chosen and a man was murdered and devoured by his comrades. Six men in total were eaten. And then off the coast of Chile in February 1821, an American whale ship came up against this boat that looked a little bit funny and when they looked into it, they found two men sucking on human bones. They were covered in salt and blood and sores. They're disoriented. They're wild-eyed. They didn't know who they were. They even tried to hide from their rescuers, you know, crouching against the sides of the boat. And these were two of the survivors.
2: And eight men survived total. Five were rescued from the sea, three from the island. And all said and done, they had been at sea for 93 days, and according to Philbrick, they sailed 4,500 miles across the Pacific. That's more than Bly after the bounty. That's more than Shackleton to South Georgia. Owen Chase wrote about the experience, and so did the cabin boy, Thomas Nickerson, uh, but it was a a very famous ordeal pretty quickly.
1: And Herman Melville read the story of the Essex while aboard a new Bedford whale ship. And he said, The reading of this wondrous story upon the landless sea, and so close to the very latitude of the shipwreck, had a surprising effect on me. Moby Dick was published in 1851, and it was a flop. And Chase went on to captain his own whale ship, but later he went insane and stored crackers in his attic, just in case.
2: And that brings us to Listener Mail. So today's edition of Listener Mail is real mail. And in fact, it is this amazing handmade card from Haley. It's so cute. Yeah, lots of people have have suggested the Whaleship Essex, but Haley was the first to do so. She recommended that Philbrick book. Um, And yeah, she made this card with a chip and it has the date November 20th, 1820, Whaleship at 6 sunk! Triple exclamation point. But the best part is the angry sperm whale. Very angry. He even has an eyebrow. His slanted
1: eyebrows. Yeah. So you can see the fury and the vengeance in his visage.
2: And it's pretty clear that he's headed at the ship at approximately six knots. And, and the, she is the one to ram a hole. Yeah.
1: She's the one who swayed our opinion and finally decided that, finally decided our minds that this is something that we should do. So thank you to Haley and for all the others who suggested the whale ship Essex. If you would like to send us an email with some topic ideas, we're at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Twitter at Mist in history, and we have a Facebook fan page. You should come find us and keep up with what we're doing. And if you're interested in Ambergris, we have an article called How Can Whale Womit Help Me Retire?, that you can find if you search our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com
2: For more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com and be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the howstuffworks.com homepage